0: Hey everybody, uh, thanks for tuning in for another great episode. This week we hit Balance of Terror, uh, one of my brother's favorite episodes, and uh, you'll see why, because uh, he talks on and on and on about this. Not in a bad way, in the absolute best way, but uh, lots to say. Uh, He loves the Romulans, so that's one of the big reasons he loves this episode, because it's their introduction. Normally, you know, we go about 45 minutes, but this week we actually hit an hour and a half. So, uh, lots to say, lots to talk about in this episode, and we'll get right to it. But right before we do, two things to say. Number one, uh, we recorded a bunch of episodes before uh, before Star Trek Discovery came out. Uh, this was kind of to hone our skills and to make sure we had kind of a backlog going. So, uh, this is one of those episodes Uh, We talk a little bit about Sarek in the middle of it and then uh, what that could mean for Discovery. So it becomes pretty obvious that we did not watch Discovery yet. So just wanted to get that programming note out there. Also, um, you know, uh, this is a great opportunity for Ken and I to get together every week. So even if the whole world's not listening, we are still going to be doing it and enjoying it and having ourselves a good time. And if you all are listening, that is all the better. And if you like what you are hearing, then do us a favor, get on the iTunes, get on the SoundCloud, get on the YouTubes once we get the videos back up and running, and leave us a little comment telling us so, because it only helps build the audience, and we could always use a little bit of audience. That'll make it even more fun. Anyway, that's all I got to say. Onward to this epic episode, Balance of Terror. Original series. As always from Austin, my name is Matt, and always from Houston, my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken.
1: Jalan True.
0: There we are. Well here we are. We're uh, now this is uh as, as I, mentioned I mentioned at the, the end, end of the last episode, episode your favorite, favorite episode. Am it I? Is, correct? Yep. yep. Awesome. This was the eighth episode that was produced and yet it was the 15th episode to air, mostly due to the uh, effects problems they were having. Uh, this is our introductions to the Romulans, uh, again. And Romulans our first, that you're,
1: uh, the first of the great, you know, empires that
0: have right, the Klingons exactly. yet. Awesome, so uh,
1: tell me what it is about the Romulans that you like so much, sir. You know, on the scale of, you know, is science fiction realistic? Is it hard science fiction? or soft this has you know elements of hardness not so much in the science fictiony part but that this is based on a real event right so there is a real destroyer versus german submarine world war ii episode that then became a movie which then became balance of terror and so when they when they take this real situation and basically put our characters in that thing it it has this added layer of realism of you know this is pl- a plausibility that doesn't happen when you come up with stuff out of whole cloth and you know on second thought you're like wait a minute does this all make sense or boy that was really fantastic in the sense of high fantasy I like the Romulans.
0: Right, yeah, Romulans. Obviously, obviously, I know you're, know a, big you're a big Romulan, Romulan fan. fan.
1: I am. Uh, the, I think the Romulans are interesting. They're they're fun villains. They're they are basically a flip side of Vulcans. So Vulcans are a highly repressive people, but that repression is all individual mm-hmm. and internalized. So we'll see Spock throughout the whole episode. Struggling to maintain control of himself, and of course, this is how repression works for Vulcans. You repress yourself by imposing, you know, the teachings of, of of Surak and logic over your highly emotional, you know, Vulcan self. And for the Romulans, it's done socially rather than individually, so you have a socially repressive system. But they're both highly scientific societies i mean they're, they're both very very similar and so i like that i mean the Vulcans are obviously my favorite but uh the romulans are their dark dark mirror
0: well and we get a little hint of that too in this episode from uh spock who says that <clears throat> who by the way it, it seems like he doesn't even know that they have branched out or that the Romulans have branched out from the Vulcans. It, it, I guess that doesn't come out till later,
1: question mark? Well, so they, they do interesting things with this. Obviously, one of the things that we're dealing with here at episode 8 is that there's a whole lot of backstory that just hasn't been written. True. And so one of the things they deal with is the, gee, we, we don't know this. But one of the things that will remain true about Vulcan history is that it's wrong that it's misunderstood. And as we go through all of our iterations, and there's a lot of, you know, Vulcans are very important in Enterprise. Mm-hmm. They will continue to deal with this. We don't understand our own history. It's been suppressed. This is part of the repressive society of the Vulcans and the Romulans, is that they basically lie to themselves. So when we first meet Vulcans and Enterprise, the difference between Romulans and Vulcans is less stark. The Vulcans are a bunch of liars and manipulators. And it's very clear that they get better over time through their contact with humans. And that by the time we get to bulk st- uh, Spock-style Vulcans, um, a lot of progress has already been made. One of the, the theories uh, proposed by Last Unicorn Games in their uh, Romulan uh, splat book was that so much of Romulan-Vulcan history was obscured that one of the things that they proposed, which which I take to make much more sense than the official explanation, isn't that the Romulans left Vulcan, but that the Vulcans left Romulus. One of the reasons it makes more Mm. sense is that the Romulans already have an empire. They're huge. They have, you know, it's a vast amount of space. It's about as large as the Klingon Empire, and it's hard to imagine that happening if there' you know a couple of colony ships that leave, although of course you have the example of the United States you know some people uh <laughs> came over to Jamestown on three boats um, but one of the things that has to happen of course, is you're not just conquering you know uh, a new continent full of people who are you know, making the transition from the Stone Age to the Bronze Age while you're on the verge of the Industrial Age. So unless we imagine some kind of technical superiority of the Romulans over everyone in that that neighborhood of space, it makes more sense to think that the warring Vulcan that Spock remembers as part of their past is actually Romulus, and it's still like that today. They still are a warlike people. And that what really happened is that uh, Surak and his, his group of uh, um, you know, people who you know adopt the, the philosophy of logic and end up leaving or separating themselves, actually go to a new planet. They don't just form communities elsewhere on the Vulcan. and then eventually the Romulans leave. It's the other way around. They're the ones who left. That's why they occupy one planet and the Romulans occupy many planets and have a a big empire. But their their history as being a mystery and not understood by themselves is uh, a long part of the show. We'll see it up until the last series and possibly we'll see it in the upcoming series so
0: another thing we're talking about then would be the time, at this point, since you kind of brought it up already, is the timeline that's uh, already discussed in this episode, which is that it's basically been about a hundred years since the war between the uh, basically the way they call it, the Earth
1: and uh, the Romulans. Right. So, so I, how does I that fit into our timeline time as, as we know it? Know it? Well, so there's two things to think about here. One is early in the series we are still talking about the federation as if it's basically the earth so at no point here have we abandoned the idea that there's earth and its friends and everybody else so spock really is by himself on this you know earth ship early on and they're dealing you know they, they get some good stories about his isolation and about him in fact in this episode, how he will stand in as the other. And you have Styles' opposition you know, hostility to him, his uh, space racism. Right. You know, against Spock. And later on there's more of an imagining that that in by the second season when we get Journey to Babel, we'll we'll build this idea that really there were four, the Andorians, the the tellarites the vulcans and the humans and they all came together to form the federation and now you know there's many many worlds and later on especially once you get to the movie budgets on makeup you can start making casts that look like they're from the star wars cantina but there'll always be this idea and they bring it up in the sixth installment of the movie that the federation is really a homo sapiens club And I think it's got its roots here in the early, early episodes in which they're imagining that the Federation is basically Earth and its little buddies. That Earth is like Athens and this is the Delian League. Or that the overwhelming power of the United States in the post-war world where the United States was like 50% of global GDP. And then its little friends were what the Federation would look like. And so, you know, you have this problem of how do we think of the Federation as it appears later, as a, as a society with many, many worlds, and Earth is just one of them, versus this early period where we'll talk about the earth Romulan Wars as though right. where's the Federation? Now, eventually they'll retcon this as it happens right before the, the original you know, coming together of the Andorians, the Tellarites, the Vulcans, and the humans, and forming the Federation. So it, it immediately predates that But so, you know, one of the things that they have to think about is the telescoping in time. They're only putting themselves out not quite 300 years in the future. Right. And so they have to somehow imagine how are we going to go from, you know, the world of the 1960s to the world of Star Trek in 300 years. Well, there's got to be tremendous... uh, you know, changes in technology, which is why we imagine this war in the past where there was no ship-to-ship communication. There was, you know, that humans never saw Romulans, Romulans never saw humans. Right. You know, primitive weapons, primitive... And, of course, later Star Trek at some point begins to play and have fun with this notion of the telescoping time when we start talking about the ancient West. And, of course, to to us, that's, you know, cowboys. (laughs) You know, so I think they, they do have fun with the idea that we overestimate how primitive things were in the Earth-Romulan war. When we see Enterprise, of course, it doesn't look, certainly to our eyes, as that primitive. They do have right. ship-to-ship communication, although the Romulans always reject it because they're super secretive.
0: You don't need to know what I look like. That's right. Well, as you've already mentioned, the idea of this episode came from the movie The Enemy Below, uh, that 1957 movie. Robert Mitchum was the lead, uh, uh, and he pursues the elusive German submarine. So in that story, the action alternates between the American ship, the U-boat, and you sort of get the respect for both the captains, which, again, sounds very familiar to what we see in this episode. Uh, Rod Berry, of course, has said, well, we kind of did this in the carbamite maneuver. Uh, the idea of, you know, pitting two starships against each other, but it was really this one where we sort of added the character depth to both sides of the characters, so we could really, you know,
1: really do the enemy below right. One of the other things that you'll see about this episode is that weapons don't work like Star Trek weapons. You know, normally we're used to hearing that particular sound effect when the phaser fires, and it's a beam. And here... It's much more like phased cannons, the way they're, which are depicted in other, there are these blasts that go out and then seem to explode in space at a particular range as though Mm -hmm. they were using death charges. And of course, the only weapon that the Romulans use, we don't see disruptor beams or uh, again, you know, uh, phased, any kind of beam. We're seeing just the torpedo as though that's its, its only weapon, like a submarine. In that sense, Star Trek has been adapted to tell this particular story. Our Star Trek characters aren't fully inhabiting the Star Trek universe. They're inhabiting some hybrid of the Star Trek slash, you know, uh, the Enemy Below universe. Well, in a way, too, you could say that
0: the differences of the weapons in this episode are due to the unique situation they are. There's no line of dialogue that says, well, let's adapt the phasers to do this, that, and the other thing. But it's very possible that that's what could have happened. A note, actually, on the uh, on the script here came from um, <coughs> came from Roddenberry, who's talking to the writer, uh, who we'll get to in a minute. Um, yeah, I should know his name. Paul Snyder, <laughs> his memo said, uh, I love all the way that you're using technology in the script. However, let's make an effort to simplify some of the descriptions of it, force fields and so on. These are interesting, but they often get scientific and more general descriptive f- phrases would be better. For example, instead of saying visual radar sweeps, can we just say bridge instruments register nothing out there yet? Which I think is really interesting because considering where the technobabble goes in the next generation... Obviously, we got Roddenberry here giving just the opposite idea.
1: Well, I think two things happen. One is there's always pressure for more technobabble. So we see it here. And it's Roddenberry who's, you know, who's got the mass market mentality. Of, I want to reach as many viewers as possible. I don't want to limit my appeal just to hard science fiction devotees. I want everyone to love Star Trek. So we have to make it less hard science, less technical, less technobabble. Right. And ultimately, the audience gets used to more and more technobabble, both because science fiction evolves and becomes mainstream, but also as Star Trek has more and more of a history, you, you end up referring back to it, even if your goal is not to become highly technical.
0: So uh, this episode was written by uh, Paul Schneider. Kind of funny because he got his uh, start writing Mr. Magoo (laughs) cartoons. (laughs) But by the time 1966 rolled around, he had a million credits to his name, Bonanza, How to Marry a Millionaire. And he also wrote for Roddenberry's show, The Lieutenant. So uh, he was somebody that everybody really knew, everybody really respected. And so uh, the episode went through a lot of rewrites, but not because the scripts were bad. But most of it was, how can we get the effects down? Obviously, there's a lot in this episode where, you know, the back and forth between the two. In fact, it was the clever, it was this thing, this let's figure out a way to make this a little bit cheaper where the whole idea of the cloaking device came from because they really wanted to find a way to, like I said, make this cheaper. So let's not even show the ship. We'll make it that easy. So all we had to do was, you know, get these occasional shots of the, uh, Romulan, Bird of Prey, you know, you know, cloaking and uncloaking and all of that stuff. I thought that was a pretty clever, you know, idea of, you know, they always say that, you know, uh, sometimes confines will make for a better idea to happen. You know, Mm -hmm. the more things you put on it, the better an idea will come. And this is the perfect example of that, I think. Mm -hmm. Vincent McVitie, that's his name, was hired to direct this episode Uh, He did uh, many episodes of all of the shows that we've talked about before. Rawhide, Branded, Gunsmoke, all of those things. Uh, He also won a Director's Guild Award for his direction of uh, the pilot episode of The Untouchables. So, kind of steeps him into some kind of great uh, legacy there as well. There's a lot of, well, there's a lot of our cast in this episode. We see a lot of the usual players. We see a a bit of Scotty, although he doesn't have many lines. We see... uh, We see Rand a lot. We see Shatner, obviously, Kirk, Spock, Bones. We see a lot of those guys a lot, but there are also a lot of, like, bit players that we see a lot in this episode, including the man who plays the Romulan commander in his first introduction to Star Trek, who's a guy we all know and love, but from a completely different role, that would be Mark Leonard, who was uh, 41 by the time he took this role.
1: He's not the only one who's going to come back. So the bride... Uh, her actress actually has three different roles in Star Trek. Oh, really? She plays the the bride in this one where she's a phaser crewman. And then she'll come back later where yes. she's got a name and she she does something else. And then she's in uh, season three as well where she's only identified as like a communications officer.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: But the idea of... Theoretically, it could be the same thing. Except that they... they the first two times they give her different names. So when she comes back the second time, she's got a different name. And then the third time she's in a different department. Same. But it was you know, the idea that the regular viewing audience, one, without reruns and DVDs, you wouldn't notice that an actress had come back. If you change your hair, you're sure. collared by a different name and put her in a different uniform, you won't go, hey, wait a minute. Wasn't she the bride in Balance of Terror? Wait a minute, Wait, shouldn't she be a phaser crewman? And of course they do the same thing with Mark Leonard.
0: Well, it seems like they do that a lot in the Bond uh, movies as well, don't they? That they're guys who were bit parts in one movie and come back and they're you know, a little larger part or some henchman or something for a half a second.
1: Hey, You, know, you were a chauffeur movie. in that movie, you're a bartender like- in this movie exactly exactly you're a bouncer at a at a chic bar in this movie <laughs> later on they do the same thing they just put people in in more and more makeup so you've got actors exactly. who've been in 3 or 4 episodes of next generation but they had so much makeup on them that you can't tell
0: you'd never know they were some random alien there's a little bit more about Mark Leonard we'll get into a more uh, next season when he comes back but of course it's, he goes on to play Seric's fox father uh over many generations of the show, uh, we see Sarek show up. Uh, also, apparently Sarek's going to be in the new
1: they do. They've, they've Discovery as well. They cast an actor for him. So
0: that will be interesting to see how that works out. Um, another uh, another uh, co-star that we get in this episode is the guy. Uh, his name is Lawrence Montaigne. He uh, auditioned for the part of the Romulan Commander 2. Uh, but he didn't get the part. He got the part of uh, Decius, the uh, you know the Roman centurion, the number one, basically, on the uh, Romulan ship. And the funny thing was is that uh, the only reason he decided to do the show, despite it being a uh, smaller part, was that he had worked with Mark Leonard almost like two weeks ago and decided, oh, hell, I'll go work with Mark Leonard again. So that's the whole reason he did the show.
1: I imagine so something well, like that you know, helps them have rapport as characters. Right, yeah, exactly. Definitely. As these two do, They've got a, they, there's definitely a, a history, a history be, yeah. between
0: those two characters.
1: And it, it, it's so important in establishing that the Romulans are, these are um, you know, decent people who are just performing their duties, that while the Romulan system may be bad in the sense that it, it will always oppose the Federation and has its own forms of you know, political problems, Individual Romulans aren't necessarily evil people.
0: Right. Well, as we find from our Romulan commander in this episode.
1: Right, because because they're friends, they're decent to one another, they care about one another, they look after one another. You know, you have that scene where uh, I'm skipping ahead here, but once, you know, Decius is dead and, and the commander decides to put his body in, he feels bad about it. Yeah. He apologized, he apologized to his friend. He says, you know, I have, to, I have to use all of my cunning right now.
0: Well, on that note, I say we just hop into it. Here. All right. I don't, it's getting harder and harder to talk about this episode <laughs> without talking about this episode. So let's do it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. Uh, we come in at the beginning of it. Apparently a wedding is going on. Kirk gets a call from Spock. We hear a little uh, exposition, which is that just that two outposts are already not responding. They're on their way to Outpost Four. Uh, Kirk's decided he's going to go ahead and go on with this wedding, but that if anything happens, of course they should call him. This is funny. I don't know why. I, I don't know why I chose this moment to talk about this, but yeah, all so so the groom walk, So he takes his. So Kirk takes his place around, uh, behind the podium, and the groomsman walks up. And Kirk like turns to him and gives him this little smile that's just like, "All right, Betty, we're gonna do this. You ready?" You know, <laughs> da, 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 da. right before we cut to Scotty walking the bride down the aisle. It's these little moments that I love that Chatner does. You know what I mean? He he fills he fills the off moments, the moments where right. there's nothing dramatic going on, with these great little like bits. You know, the it was like a couple episodes ago when he was just like doing something that. Kirk would have done a million times and he sort of delivers it just sort of offhand like ah, da, 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 because he said it a million times you know what I mean so I love these things that Kirk does and so it's funny because I feel like Shatner gets a lot of crap for you know people saying that he's a bad actor but again everything that I see him do in this series is, is like so solid and so great this moment you know I'm Captain Kirk and whatnot you know where he goes maybe
1: a little over the top
0: but that doesn't take away from the moments where he is consistently great.
1: Well, and you know, it's so the, the times when he's over the top are, are... It's it's the show. Their objections, I think, are really to the show. And what the show is asking their actors to do. Be inhabited by aliens and act in this weird way. Be your mirror universe self. Uh, you know, have a tra- transporter accident where you're the good and the bad. And yeah. I, I think he really does a good job with all these things, but they all require that we buy in to the premise. And if you don't buy in, then of course it's absurd because the premise is absurd. Oh wait, there are suddenly two of you or, you know, whatever the, the issue is. Uh,
0: So back now to the show,
1: Uh, we're, we're talking, we
0: keep talking about the eventual, eventual disappearance of brand. But, again, here she is all over the place. In fact, at this point, she is, like, standing, like, right at his shoulder. You know what I mean? So it's like they're almost building the relationship. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Also, there is a perfectly placed eye light here, which I always think is funny. This, like, perfect rectangle that is wrapped around their eyes so you can see how nice and pretty they are. Then, red alert! Out of nowhere! Well, not out of nowhere. I mean, we were advised that this might happen because Outpost 4
1: is under attack.
0: Dole credits.
1: So they You're could waiting. have said, you know, take us there, go to Yellow Alert, finish the wedding, which would have taken very little time. And it's not like the number of crewmen involved was so large that he couldn't just, you know, right. cut to the end, you know, and go, say... You- say you (laughs) briefly you know and then you have it done and then but no they interrupt the wedding and everyone runs off like they have gotta be someplace right and of course you're dealing with like a dozen people
0: and not only that but they're probably off duty probably
1: right yeah yeah there's there's someone at your station right now
0: (laughs) yes exactly you don't have to go there
1: and the captain will be at the bridge in two minutes and scotty will be in the engine room in two minutes Spock's already up there and it will take us a while to get to where the action is but they don't and i I think that's they're setting up the drama of the show rather than doing this thing where they're like okay well uh we've got yellow alert but uh you know we got more important things to do and do you take this you know
0: do you yes do you yes you're married (laughs) the short short version So I guess it's also worth mentioning here at this point that uh, this story plot of the wedding and everything else, while in the original script, was uh, pulled more into focus thanks to NBC. Stan Robertson, who, of course, didn't love the story because we're not landing on planets and dealing with aliens, even though there are aliens in this episode, uh, he felt there was too much about the uh, two ships. So he said, let's help uh, personalize the story and uh, up the use of the married couple and then losing one of them. So... I guess we found out that Stan Robertson didn't like war movies. So one thing we do miss out on here by watching the remastered versions, as opposed to watching the original versions of these, is, is that it is in this episode when the opening music changes. So the uh, original version of the opening music was the more of the electric violin, outer spacey kind of thing. And it was in this episode where and for the rest of season one, when we get the brassy version that we hear that we hear now in all of the remastered episodes. So this was the episode where it changed just a piece of trivia there for you, but uh, this was the one, and then it isn't until season two when we get back to the uh, the soprano singing her part and uh, they really up it in the mix too, which uh, also happens in season two. So there we go. This was the episode. Also, by the way, do you know, this is, an, this is another interesting piece of trivia I found out, is that Gene Roddenberry wrote words to, to the, the opening, opening theme, theme of, of Star, Star, Star Trek. Trek.
1: Yeah, he, wanted, he wanted to uh, cash in on the, on the royalties. On the on royalties,
0: royalties exactly. exactly. The theme song, yeah. So it's funny, because Alexander Courage didn't do a lot of season one's music, background music, um, because he was doing Dr. Doolittle. But when season two came along, he was so pissed off about the whole royalty thing that he just never came back to Star Trek. So that kind of sucks on Rodden. That's kind of kind of sucks that Roddenberry did that. But there you go. go. Yeah, I mean
1: Roddenberry, he makes mistakes. He's not. uh, He he doesn't, you know, always hit all the notes perfectly. I I think we're more familiar now with. You know, the, the criticisms about, you know, George Lucas's strengths and weaknesses. And you know, it's easy to find a lot of criticism of both of these guys in terms of their handling of their, their various franchises. But, you know, a lot of this ultimately comes from making the perfect the enemy of the good. When we forget that these are just creative talents who are trying to make something interesting and, and worth their time and... Uh, please the audience, they're not going to get it right all the time. They're going to make mistakes. Their own personality flaws are sometimes going to get in the way. And that's part of the creative process. So,
0: Stardate 1709.2. We'll eventually get to a map about all of this, but they say that Outpo- Outpost 4 is somewhere between Romulus and Remus and the rest of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. That sounds... Oh, actually, they call, it,
1: they call it Romai still. Oh, it's not Remus? No, not yet. In the, in the map that we'll see, it will say Romulus and then Romoi, spelled in the, the Latin way. Oh,
0: interesting. I totally missed that.
1: I was just so used to Remus.
0: I guess that's what I heard. Yeah. So, here we go. Up post four is under attack maximum speed but we're not at warp 10 yet right we can't do that that's that comes later at maximum warp now is what like max is
1: like five, five maybe no i mean it's five, theoretically five? it's nine i mean you know they've always kind of been on the nine point scale oh okay but they don't give us a number in this episode because i was listening right yeah no me too because later on they kind of established mm-hmm. that you could do warp nine for like minutes And so we are far enough away that, uh, you know, if I were to guess how this would work out in a game situation, it'd probably be Warp 7. Right. That is the highest speed that the ship seems to be able to maintain for a long period of time, perhaps hours. And of course, when you arrive, you want to be battle ready. You don't want to be like, you know, when, when Kirk... Expends, you know, every last uh, lithium circuit to save Mud's ship. He's made his ship very, very vulnerable, even to a conman, let alone a canny Romulan commander. So of course, while Kirk wants to get there as fast as possible, he doesn't want to do it in such a way that his ship is vulnerable or helpless or underperforming when he's got to face off against the unknown threat.
0: True that. So already, uh, oh, also I love this little scene where uh, he just walks up to Scotty and he's like, Scotty, I don't worry, we'll get you the speed you need, sir. I love it, it's already this un- unspoken like, give yeah. me all you got, Scotty. I
1: love it. And I'm sure this this is a result of these guys having served in the war. And they knew that captains always demand more of the ship than the ship is, you know, supposed to be able to provide. And engineers are doing things like installing, uh, you know, extra anti-aircraft guns that aren't like part of the way the ship was built. We're just going to weld that on right there. Or, you know, fiddling with the ship to get more power out of it or rewiring things because, you know, the radar doesn't work the way the, the Navy said it would or whatever. They know these guys. These uh, the writers have all seen this dynamic. They don't have to imagine. What would a ship's captain and a and a uh, chief engineer be like? They all they had seen it throughout the whole yeah. war.
0: So uh, the tension is already starting to lay in. This is one of the. This is like one of those scripts that you can look at and just see how to build tension right because there are all these like little things that just start to layer in to really start to build you know what's going on what's happening oh my gosh this is happening now this now this you know what i mean it really builds so well so <clears throat> right off the bat we get a uh, you know kirk asking did outpost four give us an identification of the attacker and she's like nope no identification sir and of course styles is right in there of course right at the top of it you know well it can't be much doubt who's attacking sir so it's fun because it sets up in an interesting way it sets up that we don't necessarily know right off the we don't know right away maybe they have an idea in their head the the crew might have an idea in their head of who's going who they're coming to but they don't even know themselves we don't know because we don't have any idea we're coming up on romulus okay what does that mean who are romulans you know so it's really cool the way they start just building it right off the bat like oh my gosh oh my gosh you know and there are a few releases along the way as the tension bounce you know you can't keep everybody tense for an entire you know hour episode but it's really cool how this is where it starts you know uh So Kirk asks for a visual on the star sector, and uh, it's this amazing, like,
1: 1960s map that shows up on the screen. I love it. I think it's great. I wish I had it as my wallpaper. You could almost, like, uh, imagine seeing a hand on the screen laying the film (laughs) on an opaque projector. (laughs) It's
0: great because, like, it seriously, like, sent me back some kind of nostalgia for those, like, the film strips or yeah. the movies that you watched in, you know, elementary school. Yeah. Which, you know, yeah. being, being as, as old as, as we, we are, know. though, it was like, oh, it's only 10 years. This movie's only, only 10, ten years, years old. old, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I loved it. It was, like, this perfect, like, retro blending of Trek and current, 1960s, current science or something. It's really great. I'm sure that, like, has some kind of, like, um, iconography that, you know. some Some kind of of 60s oh yeah absolutely what it was but it's also funny too because we start to see the little like blip you know hey this is where we are this is where we are blah blah. i you know can only imagine that now with google maps you know already that would look very different but i just love the little uh we also find out here about the neutral zone this is obviously some kind of reference to you know korea and vietnam vietnam the demilitarized zone for instance Uh, But I just love the term, the neutral zone, as opposed to, you know, demilitarized zone or whatever they might
1: use. I think there's also a kind of a Berlin Wall, you know, idea going on here. Mm. Mm. Yeah, good. You've got various Mm, flashpoints in the Cold War in which, you know, there's a standoff here, there. um, And this is meant to encapsulize all of those. You know, that we're familiar with these. You know We know about the Berlin Airlift. We know about uh, the Korean War and the demilitarized zone. We know about Turkey and Greece and uh, Truman and the Truman Doctrine. We know these things. And so just putting this demilitarized zone or the neutral zone with the Romulans on the one side and us on the other and outposts, what we, we instantly as a 1966, 1967 audience know what this means.
0: So here, uh, Kirk makes a uh, all-ship announcement. We find out a bit about the Romulans here. This is kind of our first introduction into who they are, what they are. They mentioned the 100-year-ago conf- the uh, conflict that happened. Um, they say primitive weapons were used. There was no ship-to-ship visuals. This becomes important, obviously, later in our storyline. Uh, no Earthling has ever seen a Romulan. Earthlings believe—I <laughs> love this line, too, from Spock. Earthlings believe that Romulans— to be warlike, cruel, and treacherous. Only the Romulans know what they think of Earth. The treaty says that no one can answer the neutral zone, and by doing so would mean an act of war. And this treaty has been unbroken since the time of that war. Dun-dun-dun. We learn more too, because Kirk says, uh, you know, that the orders—they're they're not there to provoke war, right? They're not to enter the neutral zone. They should only fire to defend themselves. And then, in the most dum moment of the episode so far, this vessel should be considered expendable. You know, here we are, six minutes twenty seconds into this episode, and we are already like super tense and emotional. And Styles, of course, doesn't help. Go ahead. Right.
1: It is this kind of Cold War tension about how we'll do anything to prevent World War III. And if that means this ship is expendable, that's what we'll do. Again, I think audiences would resonate in a way that, to us, it makes sense because it's part of Star Trek lore now. You know, you show this to, you, know, you, show, you show these kinds of things, these, these familiar um, franchises to kids and the kids are taking it up all new, and that's where you really get to see how some of these ideas are either part of the franchise—we're used to it because we've seen it over and over again—or you have to go back and think about when this was made to make sense of it. Well, we hear uh, Styles' prejudice already coming out.
0: We've heard it. We've heard it once sort of before, and now we definitely get it right here. We find out that he had lost a, a, a relative to the war. It obviously wasn't like his dad. It might have been a great-grandfather or something like that. Uh, but this is also our first mention of the Romulan bird of prey, right? I mean, again, what amazing, just amazing group of words put together to something that as soon as you hear it, you're like, I know what that is. Kirk comes back with, that was their war, Mr. Style, not yours. Then they pass by Outpost 2, Outpost 3. Both of them are already gone.
1: Dust, pulverized.
0: Yes, pulverized. Even the even the asteroids that they were on are now all gone. <clears throat> Kirk sends all the logs and their status to the nearest command base. Uh he puts the ship on into battle stations. Again, only a minute and twenty later and already the tension has escalated more. You know what I mean? It's just again, I just love showing the storytelling of just how it's building and building and building in this episode. It's so great. So we get uh, this. We were talking about this a little bit earlier about how, like, these the the weapons in this episode don't work like normally episodes work. Uh, We know that later uh, torpedo bays, we hear them like loading the torpedoes and whatnot, but here we've got phaser command, and it appears, at least in this episode, that the phasers are shot somewhere below decks in the phaser control room. So we get a look at that uh, area here. Uh, we see the couple that we were supposed to get married earlier, you know, uh, on the job, getting to know each other, meeting like Jamie and I did all those years, years ago of no now. now. Uh, uh, workplace, workplace romances, romances right? right? And he's her superior. Yeah, he's her superior. So there's that. Also, too, like Jamie and I. All right. We're going to call it a wrap there on episode one. For our Balance of Terror coverage, again, as you can see, Ken is very excited about this episode, and as well he should be. These are his people. But we'll be back next week, Balance of Terror Part 2. Till then.